Well, saints, it's going to be a good evening. Amen. You've sown to the wind, and you're about to reap the whirlwind in all of the best ways. Tonight is our 36th and final session on the prophetic works of Jeremiah. We began this monumental endeavor together on January 18th of 2021. And now after 266 days of studying, compiling more than 72 hours of audio and over 860 pages of detailed notes that include references for every claim that we make, we've come to the glorious finale of the book, which really marks the beginning of a lifetime campaign for you to embrace Hebrew prophetic literature and all of its glorious nuance. We want to take this opportunity to apologize to you for thoroughly ruining your ability to sit in the acceptance of the normally held views on these subjects. It was always our aim to revolutionize the way that you read the Newer Testament by interpreting it in the light of its actual biblical foundation. We realize that this means that you will never read John's revelation the same. That you will never understand Jesus' teachings in the same way. That you will never read Paul's exhortations in the same manner. The unfortunate truth is that you will no longer fit into the normative views held and taught by the superficial, substance-light, semi-spiritual sages of our modern church movement. But we would like to point out that you will be far closer to understanding your Bible in the way that God intended, and that is something that we do not intend to apologize for. We want you to consider a sampling of the things that our community journey have yielded together and that you now understand. All right, so we're going to start out similar to where we started in the beginning of our study of Jeremiah. We're going to put up a familiar slide that you've seen before. This is uh, Paul Rosales with my son Jonathan. We captured it and edited it on Apple photo editing abilities. And uh, the next slide you've seen as well. That's me holding up Peyton. (laughs) So needless to say... Since January, January, the way that you examine the book of Jeremiah is not by counting the brushstrokes, the order of their application, making lists of the colors utilized, and analyzing the physical properties of the canvas. But you have learned to look for the intent of the spiritual artist that gave us the book we are reading. You have learned to grasp the beauty the emotion, the sense of relationship that is being conveyed. You have dropped the false presumption that you are reading a technical manual written by an engineer. And you have given proper credence to taking in the concept, emotion, 
and imagery that was designed to impact your souls. So we didn't spend hours arguing about the chronology of Jeremiah, did we? No. No. We didn't talk about the seemingly contradictory areas of the chronology of Jeremiah that are actually not contradictions. They are rather areas of emphasis. The same is true of the book of Revelation, by the way. Have you seen a lot of comparisons in the last weeks since January? Which also should not be read as a technical chronological, chronological account, but rather as it is a prophetic work. We learned of one such example of seeming contradiction while we compared Jeremiah to Ezekiel and 2 Kings. And you guys might remember this slide here. Painting a picture or writing technical manuals. There's a few points that we wanted to review. Ezekiel told Zedekiah that he would not see Babylon, but that he would die there. You can find that in the book of Ezekiel. We found in Jeremiah that Jeremiah told Zedekiah that he would see the king of Babylon and that he would go there. Oh my goodness, a seeming contradiction. What are we going to do? We need to take a couple steps back and look at what the painting is trying to uh, paint for us. In 2 Kings, we found our answer. Zedekiah sees the king of Babylon outside Babylon, and he's blinded. Zedekiah is then taken into Babylon, and of course he can't see it because he's blinded. So 2 Kings resolved the misconception for us, and it showed the level of accuracy of both Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Zedekiah was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, His sons were killed, and then he was blinded. Next, he was taken to Babylon, which, of course, he couldn't see. Because we rejected reading Jeremiah as a technical manual, we were able to take several steps back and see the more complete picture of what the prophets painted for us. In this painted picture, there is also a pretty interesting political backdrop. We have another slide for you. So you can see in 639, we have the reign of Josiah beginning. That ends with him being killed by Pharaoh Necho. He's succeeded by Jehoahaz. And he has this very short reign of three months. And then he's followed up by Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim's reign has lots of events that came to pass. You have the Battle of Carchemish, where Nebuchadnezzar beats Pharaoh Necho. You have the Assyrians conquered by Babylon. And you have the first and second siege of Jerusalem. Now, when the first siege is when Daniel goes into exile, and then you have the second siege where Ezekiel goes into exile. And then we have another short reign by Jehoiachin, and he reigns another three months. And then we come to Zedekiah, whom we're all very familiar with because of the last couple weeks. During his reign, we have the third and final siege, and Jeremiah is taken away to exile. Now, throughout the book of Jeremiah and the reign of the five kings that Peyton just listed, Jeremiah presents Israel as acting in an adulterous manner. Now, if you haven't noticed yet, this is going to be the evening of the slides, but you certainly remember this slide. Oh, yeah. Everybody in the room should be thinking about your wedding photos. It's been an amazing season in LCM, getting to see people married. Now imagine that you are on your way home from work because you finished your day earlier than you usually do. Notice a hand opening the door. 
Imagine that this is you. What is the impact of this picture on your soul? Hmm. All right, young men in the room. We have any newly married people here tonight? Does that make you mad? Glad? Or sad? Double homicide. <laughs> For many of the young husbands in the room, honesty is good in the house again. <laughs> it definitely engendered feelings of impending judgment. Now, what if it is not our hand on the door? What if we are number one or number two out of the people in the bedroom? Wouldn't you be feeling shame? Or perhaps justification with a carnal heart? Or maybe embarrassment. In any case, would your palms be sweating? Your heart rate increasing? Can you feel the intensity that the image portrays? The Word of God is living and active. It has moving experiences. And as we have been studying it together, it has moved us. Because God's hand is the one that is on the door. This is what is pictured in Jeremiah. After experiencing these kind of emotions, as Jeremiah intended us to, not just a technical manual, but the import of the emotions. It was confronting to learn that God had not given up on Israel. Yeah. When you see that image, if you're the one with your hand on the door, you don't see much of a future. <laughs> That's how theologians have looked at Israel. And they've forgotten that there's a future for them, meaning the theologian, and they're actually the ones in bed. The Bible makes the claim in unmistakable terms for anyone with eyes to see that Israel is foreknown, Israel is chosen, Israel is elect. You may remember this slide. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Learning to interpret scripture in light of scripture means that just two chapters later, when Paul identifies the one people group on the planet that he is actually speaking about, you have to understand what he's saying. Romans 11.1 1 says, I ask then, did God reject his people? He wouldn't have to say that if people didn't believe it was true. Yeah then and now. And given the imagery of that photograph, you can understand why people thought yes. it was true. Look at his answer. By no means. Hell no. I am an Israelite myself. I am a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He's not claiming to be a spiritual Jew. He's claiming to be a biological family member of Israel. God did not reject his people Amen. whom he foreknew. Yes. 
the one people group on the planet foreknown by God, destined by God, called by God, justified by God, to become what Messiah is, is Israel. Israel is the only nation that God ever makes such a claim about. Every other nation that is included would have to be a mysterious inclusion, not specified in the text. His language in Romans 8.28 clearly draws on the history of the patriarchs of Israel. So if you're a New Testament only Christian, I could see how Romans would get confusing. But if you have a habit of reading the Bible as a contiguous book, starting from Genesis all the way to the end, then you would see this. The patriarchs in Genesis, you can tell that Paul's drawing from this language. Abraham is predestined to become a blessing to the entire planet. When you're reading Genesis, you can see that God already had this in his mind. Then you can see Isaac as the promised son who is called forth from barrenness to fulfill the promise of Israel. Then you would see that Jacob is the one who's justified by his trust in Adonai, and he actually becomes Israel. And then you would see that Joseph is rejected by his brothers, but he is glorified by God as their savior and the savior of the world. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. From this, we learned that both houses of Israel are descendant from the same patriarchs, meaning that they carry on that same promise. We learn that both houses of Israel share the same destiny. There's no tribes that are lost, even if at times they receive different treatment from God. It also became clear to you that God views them as one house, one bride, even if it takes time to accomplish that goal, God will eventually do it. This had a profound effect on the way that we understood national destinies in the Bible. We have another slide entitled National Destinies that we want to pop on the screen for you. These verses all come from Romans, the ninth chapter. In verse 7, we had Abraham and Isaac mentioned. And it was through Isaac that their offspring was reckoned. In verses 10 through 13, we had Esau and Jacob mentioned. These two men, it's important to realize, are the heads of two nations. Edom and Israel. Esau is the head of Edom. Jacob was the head of Israel. Israel was elect and still is. Edom is not elect. In verse 17 of Romans 9, Pharaoh is mentioned. In the same vein, walking through this chapter, you can realize that Pharaoh is mentioned because he's the head of Egypt. And he's raised up for the purpose of displaying the election and salvation of Israel. Look at that bottom line there. Nations have destinies. People have choices. Israel is foreknown, and they're predestined to be saved. So at this point in our study of Jeremiah, you should be crystal clear on this fact that nations do indeed have destinies, and people like you and I have choices to embrace or reject that destiny. God's chosen in Hebrew. That word is equivalent to God's elect in Greek. This will help you hermeneutically as you work your way through God's wedding story. Amen. So we have another slide for you. And we're going to hunt down this word in the Septuagint. 
This is from 1 Chronicles 16, 13. It says, Seed of Israel, his servants, sons of Jacob, his chosen. This is Greek 1588. Next slide. This is electo, eclectos, sorry, eclectos, which means to choose, to select, chosen. What we learned from 1 Chronicles 16 is that that is Israel. Yes. Now, it is a part of, in a group of three important biblical words that are eclectos, eclecto, and eclego. Yeah. Lego, my ego. Lego my electos. Lego my electos. That's what Moses said to Pharaoh. (laughs) We have a good time with word studies. Uh, But listen to this. A selection that involves thoughtful or deliberate consideration. So we have an exercise where we plugged in the words into these New Testament passages. Now when I say the highlighted word, you are going to repeat Israel. And Treaster's going to shout it louder than anyone else. Yeah. So from Ephesians 1. Come at me. Uh, <laughs> for he chose Israel in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. How about 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10? Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from, descended from David. That is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Israel! That they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ with eternal glory. All right, Romans eleven twenty eight. Yeah. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on, on your account. But as far as election, Israel is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Come on. Saints, throughout the book of Jeremiah, you've developed a healthy appreciation for Jeremiah's prophetic actions as he's demonstrating God's desire towards Israel. Our next slide is going to remind you of some of those prophetic actions that we've seen together. So in Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah wore and then buried a linen belt, and they went back out to get it. Jeremiah purchases and shatters a jar of clay in chapter 19. We'll see more on that in just a little while. Jeremiah wears a yoke, like a physical yoke, on his neck in chapter 27. Jeremiah purchases a title deed in Jeremiah 32. At a time when those fields were under siege to demonstrate that God would restore their land grant. Jeremiah willingly puts on shackles Mm. in chapter 40. You remember that? He was wearing bronze shackles and going with the captives because he wanted to identify with God's chosen people, Israel, rather than receiving comfort from the Babylonians. Jeremiah buries large stones as a place marker for a Babylonian throne in Egypt before all the Egyptians to see in chapter 43. Jeremiah not only uses prophetic action to drive home his point, but he also often repeats the same patterns. One such pattern that we learned about came from Jeremiah 6, 22 through 26. As you're looking at this slide, repetitiously, we see an army attacking from the north, followed by labor pains followed by mourning for an only son. 
We learned that this is a pattern in biblical prophecy that repeats itself over and over throughout biblical history. And it will ultimately culminate at the end of the age described in Zechariah 12, 10 through 11. That's where the Jewish nation receives their Messiah in mass. The pattern starts with the pronouncement of judgment, but it is pointing always towards hope and restoration. The pattern was even outlined by Jesus himself in Matthew 24 when he was asked specifically about the end of the age. We moved on from that and began to notice a constant cycle throughout Israel's history. Jeremiah describes it, he alludes to it, and he delineates it. So in chapters 13 and 14 of Jeremiah, we saw a cycle starting to take effect. But it did not start in Jeremiah. It was prophesied about in the Torah, plays out all throughout the prophets, and it keeps going. The first step is that Israel breaks the covenant that God made, and they commit idolatry with foreign gods. As a result of that, God disciplines them first with various national calamities. Next, the land is invaded, and then finally the people are exiled from the land. Now eventually, in their exilic state, they repent for their sins out of desperation because they realize they broke the covenant. And that culminates in the Lord restoring them back to the land. But you see that pattern repeating. They always go right back to step one. You see, recognizing and understanding this pattern. Are you all seeing that pattern? Yes. It is essential, say essential, essential, to understanding the end times. You can't understand eschatology without understanding this cycle. And now that you know it, you will be able to identify the pattern as it will undoubtedly be repeated in the last days for Israel. We're not talking about Gentile nations. We're talking about Israel. Another such pattern we've learned to identify came from Jeremiah chapters 15 and 16. Yeah, as we're going through these patterns, you guys didn't know it as we were studying Jeremiah, but you're realizing now that you are so much more holistically literate, biblically speaking. You guys are able to identify patterns in Jeremiah and throughout the Word and see them all over the Word of God, Older and Newer Testaments, and you're better Bible scholars for it. Yes. This is the prophetic pattern of Jeremiah 15 and 16. Let me remind you about what you're looking at here. So the first column on the left is the pattern that we saw in Jeremiah 15 and verse 2. Death, sword, starvation, and captivity. As we move from Jeremiah 15 into Jeremiah 16, we saw a comparison between those two chapters. And the middle column is what we found in Jeremiah 16 verse 4. A sword to kill dogs to drive away, birds of the air, and beasts of the earth. And we learned something awesome in the right column. There are correlating themes surrounding these two chapters. Mm -hmm. Number one, premature death. Number two, surrounded by violence. Number three, economic suffering. Number four, living in oppression. Jeremiah actually gives us the key to understanding the six seals of Revelation from these passages in chapter 15 and 16. There you go. We learn that these keys were foreseen all the way back in Deuteronomy. They were carried out in Jeremiah's day, 
and we will ultimately find their culmination in the book of Revelation. These patterns from beginning to end are making you guys literate biblical scholars. Amen. God took extraordinary measures through Jeremiah to drive home the actions he would take to chastise and restore. Say chastise and restore. Chastise and restore. His people. So consider the lesson Jeremiah taught from the potter's house. God told Jeremiah to take a clay jar and smash it in front of the elders of Israel, signifying that the present generation was like the jar of clay that was going to be smashed, even though God was going to use the same lump, say same lump, same lump, that same lump of clay to mold Israel into a vessel of honor. Now, this is from chapter 18, and we have a slide for you with a nice visual aid to help us. We call him Baji. (laughs) so we have a principle here that god is in control of all circumstances and his purpose was that um, the purpose is god has an outcome that will ultimately be achieved we will use the same lump of clay and on a personal level every man in every generation must trust him now not only did god address israel he addressed the nations surrounding Israel because he is the potter. And then it was at this time that we introduced this parable to you. I'm going to read to you the parable. There was a great king with his firstborn son and many servants. The king became displeased that his firstborn son and his servants were disobedient. So the king takes one of the servants and commands the servant to spank his firstborn son. After the son is corrected, the great king then proceeds to discipline all of his servants in a specific order and saves the one who spanked his firstborn son for last. The son of the king is the nation of Israel, and he has been thoroughly disciplined, but he's retained every promise concerning their ultimate destiny. This is what is confirmed in Romans 11 that we were just discussing. Despite the discipline, they've retained the ultimate destiny. Additionally, the great king of the world has proceeded to discipline every other servant in the house. This is the Gentile world, the kingdoms of the earth, until he has come to the last one, Babylon. It was noted going through each of the ten nations that the same standards for judgment are used for these Gentile nations are used with Israel. You guys remember seeing those parallels? Yeah. Yeah. With the additional emphasis being on how they related to Israel, who served as their example. In examining Jeremiah's ministry, we couldn't help but all come to the conclusion that in many ways, he was very much like the Jewish Messiah. On that note, we'd like to remind you of some things you learned about Jeremiah as a type of Christ. They were both, Jeremiah and Jesus, known before their birth. They were both men of sorrows acquainted with grief. They both proclaimed in the temple of God that it was a den of thieves in their present day. They both predicted the destruction of the temple. God's word was said to be in both of their mouths, maybe with Jesus more than his mouth. (laughs) They were both under divine protection. They both traveled Judah and proclaimed a message condemning religious leaders and taught the newer covenant. 
don't think this irreligious, but Jeremiah proclaimed the newer covenant before Jesus ever did. You know, so many think that Isaiah is the most messianic book in the Old Testament, and that's just because they haven't dug deep enough. If you can look on this next slide, we see more types of Christ in Jeremiah. Both were disclaimed by false prophets. Both described himself as a lamb. Both men called people to repentance. Both men were hated by their own countrymen. Both of them were mocked. Both of them were scourged by chief priests. And both of them were rejected by family. Is this helping you guys as we go through on slides? As you can see them holistically, like one after the other. Is it helping you guys see the connections between Jeremiah and Christ? The point is, is that the things that Jeremiah talked about Jesus furthered, and they're still not done. So on the third slide, both of them spoke of Jerusalem's destruction. Both wept for them, wept over Jerusalem. Both warned people to flee the city. Both predicted the city's coming glory. Amen. Amen. In both accounts, the leaders tried to find fault in them. Both were given into the hands of the people, and both were condemned to die by prophets, priests, and the people. So many similarities. Here's our final slide on Jeremiah as a type of Christ. We found that they were both found not to be worthy of death. They suffered a symbolic death and resurrection. And they trusted that Yahweh would save him. Mm. So after seeing Jeremiah as a type of Christ, we are better positioned to understand the new covenant that Jeremiah introduced and that Jesus inaugurated. Isn't that a really cool connection? Yeah. In fact, we spent five special nights on it, and here are their reviews. So at our first night, we covered verses 1 through 11 out of chapter 30. Our first three points of review come from the first three verses. We discovered connections between the name of God and the nature of his word. Our second point was we discovered the book of consolation, a book within Jeremiah, and the first three verses is announced. Then our third point, we saw Jeremiah, who afflicted the comfortable, begin to comfort the afflicted. Right in the middle of all of this judgment, he turns to God's comfort for those who are afflicted. Number four, we covered in great depth the certainty. Somebody say certainty. Certainty. Of the reunification of Israel and Judah as one restored nation. This came from verse 4. In verse 7, we were reacquainted with the unparalleled uniqueness of the time of Jacob's trouble. Nothing in history has ever met the requirements for it. It's a day to be unequaled in the future. And the ancient nature of this prediction that goes as far back as Enoch, the seventh from Adam. You guys remember that? Did that surprise you? Yes. Number six, in verse nine, we discovered the intricate beauty of the David and David's son as king scenario. And as well as Psalm 110, as well as the life of Solomon in 1 Kings, each of these things affected our understanding of the phrase one greater yes. than Solomon is now here. Come on. Our last point of review, last but not least, was verse 5 and 6. We reminded you of the prophetic pattern, the progression that is prevalent not just in Jeremiah, but through all of the prophets. Yeah. 
They speak about the same message. We moved on to a second night covering the newer covenant and the conditions surrounding it, and maybe more importantly, the requirements of the newer covenant. Mm. Has far more to do with Israel than you raising your hand in a dark room as a child in uh, an evangelistic crusade. Jeremiah 30, 12 through 21 could be summarized as that generation in Israel had reached a place where there was no longer a remedy. So the conclusion was that the nation had to be born of the Spirit. Yes. If you understand that, then you will begin to understand John 3 as the writer intended you to understand it. What would happen as Israel was born of the Spirit is God would move to eliminate every rival lover that she had ever experienced. Israel's great guilt would be both acknowledged and atoned for. Everyone who had tried to destroy Israel throughout the ages would themselves be destroyed. And God would bring healing to his sons, Israel. We finish the evening with an overview of Jacob's trouble that must precede all of the other items on the list. All right, everybody still breathing? This is good stuff, ain't it? Our night three recap of the book of Consolation, Jeremiah 30, verse 22, to Jeremiah 31, verse 14. We saw that Israel is the chosen or elect nation. And the most important fact is that this is in the Peshat. This is not a sowed in scripture. This is not a remez. This is in the Peshat hundreds of times. We learn that there is a coming storm, a storm that is coming to protect and deliver Israel. We also found that there is a sword and sieve process that is coming to the house of Israel. And that process is meant to leave Israel a penitent remnant within Israel. When we noted that all Israel will be saved, we noted that in that, it will be a a penitent remnant that remains. Fourthly, we saw that the pierced one speaks to the penitent nation. He actually says something, and we got to see what he is saying. I have loved you with an everlasting love. We found that there is favor in the desert. In the book of Consolation, and that foreshadows a second Exodus event that has to surpass the first Exodus. In fact, it says they will no longer speak of the first Exodus. We saw the Good Shepherd discussing the Exodus on the Mount of Transfiguration with two other men who have been on Mount Sinai. We also saw major revelation overtones, namely saying in the book of Consolation, there will be no more sorrow. Does that remind you of no more tears in the book of Revelation? In night four out of five in Jeremiah 30 to 31, we have a recap for you of seven items. First of all, inconsolable Rachel will be rewarded. It looked like it would be impossible that Rachel could be consoled. But the takeaway there is that with God. That which seems impossible, God makes it possible. He is the one that breathes into impossible situations. Whether in Matthew or in Jeremiah, because we were reading both of those books that night, the point was that there is always going to be hope for Israel. Yes. 
We talked about Ephraim being the absolute worst of the tribes, but the, in, the um, repentance of Ephraim would be anticipated in Jeremiah 31, and that would be something that would be to come. Number four, the Lord delights in the return of all tribes. Highways will be built for their return. We also talked about a new thing. What was this new thing and what made it so important? There would be a planting of salvation and deliverance for Israel that would be permanent. It would never, ever, ever pass away from that moment. We talked about a woman that will surround a man. That this revelation was foreseen in advance. They saw a woman surrounding a man, and the revelation is coming that the city of God will surround his very throne. (laughs) Finally, we talked about a brooding and tearing down that will eventually give way to a planting and a building. The fresh planting that will produce 12 crops that in turn heal the rest of the world. In our fifth and final night, in Jeremiah 30 through 31, we put together the following slide, a type of highlight reel to help you grasp a more holistic view of Israel's newer covenant and experiences in the last days. So we have that slide. This section of Jeremiah is a book within a book called the Book of Consolation. By scholars, it is within the consolation of Israel that the newer covenant appears. We have spent five nights out. We spent five nights outlining the certainty of the reunification of both houses of Israel. Israel will experience a time of Jacob's trouble and have their great guilt atoned for, culminating in a nation born of the Spirit. Point four: The good shepherd, who is the pierced one, will appear to Israel, saying, "I have loved you with an everlasting love." Point five, all tribes of Israel will experience a fresh planting of salvation, resulting in the new Jerusalem surrounding the throne of God as a woman surrounds a man. Number six, Israel was foreknown from the creation of the world as a specific people who would, in, who would inherit a specific place, and the Bible specifies the plan for the redemption. The Lord had this in mind before the foundation of the world. Number seven, The entire book of Revelation is the culmination of the redemption of Israel and the fulfillment of the promises given to Israel. And the good news is you were grafted into their plan. Guys, I know this is a review, but was it not astounding to you to realize that God had a plan for redemption of Israel before he laid the foundation of the earth? Come on. The scripture declares that? Come on. As after five nights of in-depth study, on this book within a book. Your understanding of the basic tenets of the newer covenant became more consistent with the views of the very people who received the newer testament. Now our next slide is a bit of a picture of the views that they had of the newer covenant. Now I realize it's small up there. I'm just gonna read out a few to you. The certainty of the reunification of Israel and Judah. Ephraim's Repentance is anticipated and expected. That there are revelation overtones, no more sorrow, depicting what the new covenant would actually be like. That great guilt would be acknowledged and atoned for. My personal favorite, the destruction of the destroyers. (laughs) All of them, down to the last one, Babylon. 
Now, guys, the reality is we picked up more points of what the new covenant would look like as we went on. We just didn't think Pastor Nick Aragina could be asked to squeeze anything more into a singular slide. Now, after gaining this kind of understanding that we collectively worked through together as a family since January, we spent some time examining man-oriented covenants versus God's predestined will. In covering the Rechabites, we noted the following. So as I get into the Rechabites, if you'll back up that slide just a second. I'm working hard not to interrupt my brothers. <laughs> How many of you have had a relative in a play? Raise your hands. Now, leave your hands up if your relative was the lead role in the play. Yeah. Only two of you in the whole room. So 70% of you have had somebody in a play that you went to see. But only two of you in the room was the person, the lead role. Too often you have read your Bibles as if you were going to see a play that your relative was in. And even though they're just playing the turkey that gets killed in scene number seven that might get cut from the movie, you're so excited that you have a part You thought it was their play. In the Bible, Israel is the lead character, period. Your role is kind of like key grip number two that is nameless and faceless in the back with sunglasses on. (laughs) And I am excited that we're all in the play. But you misunderstand the entire drama if you don't understand the lead characters. That is what those five nights were straightening out. Because all of you believe that you're a part of the newer covenant, but you didn't even know what you were a part of. The book of Jeremiah has helped us out with that greatly. On the note of people that have no idea what they're doing, but are (laughs) faithful to what they're doing, let's talk about the Rechabites for a minute. In chapter 34, the Israelites have been breaking the covenant that God cut for them from the beginning. Yet God keeps his covenant even when men do not. In chapter 35, we're introduced to the Rechabites who have been faithful to their own man-originated covenant. And God uses even those clueless Gentiles to teach his people. The Rechabites are honorable in that sense, like many of us have been honorable. But they don't know what they're doing. They're just doing what somebody else told them they should do. Their uh, customs were not derived from God. For instance, the prohibition on wine is ridiculous. In verse 36, God demonstrates that even through his own, even though his own people are faithless to the covenant, God is a covenant-keeping God, and he will never turn his back on Israel. After once again solidifying the certainty of Israel's destiny, both the text of Jeremiah and the direction that we turn to, turn towards the nations, the Gentile kingdoms that surround Israel Because God does indeed have a plan for all of those nations as well. So we saw the ten nations addressed in chapters 46 through 51. First, beginning with Egypt. 
Secondly, Philistia, then Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, which is the head of Syria, Kedar, Hatsor, Elam, and then last but not least, Babylon. Now you'll notice that these are the nations that are immediately surrounding Israel, and they comprise the biblical worldview. We have a map with these nations listed. What we've been learning in the book of Jeremiah specifically is that this story is about Israel and the nations surrounding Israel. That is the entire Bible. It's not about Norway, not about Russia. It's a Middle Eastern story with Israel in the center. Would somebody please point to China on the map? Would somebody please point to Russia on the map? So book upon book about the destiny of Russia or China or America has veered from the central characters in the biblical drama. And that is why they do not understand the word. But you, saints, have just been a year studying Jeremiah. So with that map, in chapter 51 we came, chapter 50 and 51, we came to that final nation of Babylon. The one that God spanked, right? Yeah. Babylon dealt with his first four son, and then God spanked him last. Yep. At this point, we were armed with an understanding of the newer covenant. And that enabled us to see that no historical event has yet fulfilled what God says to Babylon in chapters 15 yeah. and 51. Yeah. We haven't seen it in its fulfillment yet. Yeah. This is why the book of Revelation is still addressing Babylon. Yeah. So in those two chapters, the prophecy and the fulfilling events are aimed at the shame of Bel and the terror of Marduk. Wet himself. Yeah, no, Marduk definitely wet himself during this prophecy. <laughs> the joints of his loins were loosed. <laughs> so Israel, meaning Judah together with Israel, must be bound to the Lord with an everlasting covenant come on. for us to know that these events have actually come to their culmination point. Yeah. We have four historical reasons that that prophecy is yet unfulfilled. Firstly, the Medes and the Persians, their empire is located east of Babylon. Well, those chapters clearly said from the north, an army coming from the north. So that does not fulfill it. Secondly, if you're not satisfied with point number one, right? The city was not laid waste or left uninhabited. In fact, Daniel stayed in it and served in the government. We read that in Daniel 5.30 through chapter 6 and verse 3. Thirdly, no one fled the city when it fell to the Medes and the Persians. And most of the book of Daniel actually attests to this. It just, the leadership rolled over. And they continued their business as usual. This was in Daniel chapters 5 through 9. Lastly, and my favorite, the new covenant was not enacted or completed during these historical events. That is the nail in the coffin kind of um, conclusion that we came to that we did not see these happen in their fulfillment. In fact, we came to see the text outlines four things that must happen for the prophecy to be fulfilled. And they all occur in the book of Revelation. One, it will be a nation to their north. Yep. No one will live in Babylon afterwards. Men and animals will flee Babylon. And point four. 
four, in those days and at that time, an everlasting covenant. Notice, in those days and at that time. The fourth item is the one that most Christians fail to understand. It is the same covenant as Jeremiah 31, 31 states here in, Jer here in Jeremiah 50. We can pay careful attention to these specifics. Israel and Judah will come together. They will tearfully seek the Lord. They will bind themselves to the Lord. And the covenant will be everlasting. Come on. Now, any clear understanding of this slide means that the newer covenant has been announced and the process initiated, but reveals that it has not yet reached the place of culmination because these things haven't happened. This is an area that needs to be cleared up among the biblically literate in Christendom. <laughs> All biblical indicators point to the completion of the newer covenant as occurring in the time of Mystery Babylon's ultimate destruction. Oh, now we discussed two main reasons that Christians miss these things. First, we have become arrogant and have forgotten that all, that all of these promises apply to national Israel before they can be applied to any Gentile believer. First the Jew, then the Gentile. Second, people have failed to understand the concept of Goel. We have another slide for you to remind you of this concept. Yeah. To redeem... To avenge, to act as a kinsman. Thus the kinsman redeemer was responsible for preserving the integrity, the life, the property, and the family name of his close relative. Or for executing justice. I just heard an extraordinary word in a recording from a remnant church. That was about the biblical concept of a hero who delivers his people and judges the adversaries that put the man's family in danger. Amen. Thank you for that, Rob. Amen. Guys, we know you don't use the word kinsman often. We discussed this in previous weeks. But what comes to mind immediately after we have worked through this together is a biological family member. This is not a metaphor. It's not a remez. Kinsman means biological family member. You understanding that immediately puts you heads and tails above most interpreters. You guys know that the role of the kinsman redeemer, as exemplified in the story of Boaz with Ruth, is only half of the function. The term is also rightly translated as avenger of blood, and it appears throughout Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Translators are forced in English to translate it either as redeemer or avenger. We don't have an English equivalent to this word. But in Hebrew, the concepts are not separate, but rather the same. It's the same word. You know that Israel as a nation is the son of God. In the biblical sense, his immediate family. He is their redeemer and avenger. Jesus is the kinsman, redeemer, avenger of Israel's blood. This has positioned you to understand the book of Revelation as the original audience would have understood it. Amen. We're going to look further at the word goel in two passages together. Yeah, I hope that the 266 days of study for us has produced at least some level of enlightenment for you. You look very sleepy tonight. No. <laughs> I, know it's, I know that it's review. I, I do get that. Could you use a little review, or yeah. could you yeah. recount yeah. all of these things? The home of the new covenant is thought to be Jeremiah 31. Well, in the home of the new covenant, 
The opening line of Jeremiah 31:11 is for the Lord will go well, ransom or avenge Jacob and redeem them. Do you hear how redundant it would be to simply say he'll redeem them, redeem them? Yeah. He doesn't. The new covenant involves them being avenged as much as it does them being saved and certainly more than you being saved. Yeah. The passage goes on to describe Jerusalem as a well-watered garden and there being no more sorrow. That is new covenant. It cannot be done. It is still in process of being done. In Jeremiah 50, the very same word appears. Yet their redeemer, their avenger is strong. The Lord Almighty is his name. He will vigorously defend their cause so that he may bring shalom to the land and anti-shalom to the Babylonian prostitute. Chaos. In both of these passages, the word is goel. It has to relate to a biological family member. It cannot simply be a spiritual association. Understanding the primary role of Jesus as a goel, and specifically the goel of Israel, causes you to be able to understand the book of Revelation in the light that the original authors intended it to. See, we've been going through Jeremiah, but we've also been going through Matthew. We've been going through Jeremiah, but we've also been going through Romans. We've been going through Jeremiah, but we have also been giving you the key to understand your newer testament. We're trying to unroll 2,000 years of crappy teaching. All right, so the goal of this is the avenging and redemption of Israel, leaving them in a restored state with no more sorrow. That statement means that we're still looking for the Goel, aren't we? Yeah, we are. I want you to look at the next slide. Israel's kinsman redeemer. Jeremiah 31 again. Verse 11, for the Lord will Goel Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Come on now. I want you to see how Revelation is conceptually linked to this Goel in Jeremiah 31. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Amen. What we see in Revelation is actually the Goel doing his thing. The most vivid portrayal of the Goel is Revelation 19. And this point becomes even more clear if you read on to Revelation 22 and notice that Jerusalem is described in Revelation 22 as a well-watered garden. Amen. We're still waiting on the Goel. Yeah. Lastly, we noticed how the heavens rejoiced after the fall of Babylon and the specific words that were used in Revelation 19. Guys, we've come to our last point of review. 
You guys ready for the last point of review? Revelation 19, 1 through 2. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged, like a goel, he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So, tonight, as we move to our final chapter of Jeremiah. It's the final countdown! Know that you guys have been very well prepared yeah. to understand the word as a contiguous story. Yeah. A story with themes that begin all the way in Genesis and culminate in the last book of Revelation. You undoubtedly see that Israel's destiny is secure and that Babylon's judgment is certain. Come on. Yeah. So tonight, we're not going to begin in 52 verse 1. We're actually going to come back a little bit to chapter 51. We're, we're going to catch verse 59 first, and we're going to carry through to the end of the book. Yeah. And at the very end of our study tonight, we're going to give you one more brief overview that's going to help you assimilate all that you have learned. Come on. So tonight, what man of God wants to stand up and get our study of 52 on and going? Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the good things that you've given us in this study, mighty God. Lord God, you've given us beautiful treasures in your word, Lord. We're asking God that you would help us hold to them. Father, we're asking that you would help us grow in them, mighty God. Lord God, they, they would not just be things studied in the past, God, but that you would make, us, make them a part of our understanding, Lord, as we take what we've been given, Lord, and grow it, as we take it and internalize it. Father, we're asking God that you would help us grasp your word, Lord, like David grasped the sword of God. Father, open our eyes, Lord, and our hearts, Lord, to receive everything, God, that you want to give us in this study, that you have given us already, and that you will continue to give us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Well, Justin resets so that he can get ready to read for us. I'd like by show of hands, how many of you have taught a Bible study, a Sunday school class, or a morning devotional somewhere? <laughs> then you should be able to appreciate that these men just took 59 minutes and 36 seconds and summarized 51 chapters of one of the most complicated books in the Bible and give them a hand. Yeah. Amen. 
about Sariah and Baruch. Do we have a slide for that? Uh -huh. Oh, they were brothers! <laughs> so let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 12. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Masiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. Okay, so we see son of Neriah, son of Masiah. Let's go to Jeremiah 51. The word that Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sarahiah, the son of Neriah, the son of Masiah, when he went with Zedekiah, king of Judah, uh, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. Sarahiah was the quartermaster. You see, the Lord has always used teams. Amen! Amen. He always uses teams. And these teams are formed by God and function in his purposes. Every apostle was paired with another apostle. Sometimes they were brothers in the sense that they came from the same womb. And in other instances, they were brothers in the sense that they were born of the same spirit. In this case, Baruch and Sarahiah were both of the same womb and of the same spirit. Special. Now that is a rare and special blessing. Right, Rosales brothers? That's right. Yeah! Come on. Let's move on to verse 60. Jeremiah had written on a scroll about all the disasters that would come upon Babylon, all that had been recorded concerning Babylon. He said to Sarahiah, when you get to Babylon and see, when you get to Babylon, see that you read all these words aloud. A small request, you know. <laughs> oh Lord, you have said you will destroy this place so that neither man nor animal will live in it. Try doing that in a movie theater. <laughs> Fire! It will be desolate forever. When you finish reading this scroll, tie a stone to it and throw it into the Euphrates. Then say, so will Babylon seek to rise no more. Because of the disaster I will bring upon her, and all her people, people will fall. The words of Jeremiah all right, so in our last session, you became aware of the ultimate fulfillment of these prophetic actions. They're specifically outlined in Revelation 18, 21. You guys remember, it's an angel throwing a millstone, the destruction of Babylon, it just grows to a grander scale. So we're not going to retread that ground here. <laughs> Instead, let us focus on another issue. Many scholars have seen the coming chapters as an appendix as like an uh, afterthought, an add-on to Jeremiah. This is because of the phrase, the words of Jeremiah end here. In our view, in the right view, that does not <laughs> indicate the end of the book of Jeremiah, but rather indicates the end of the prophecy to Babylon that we've been covering all of this time. You guys tracking with us here? Yeah. Yeah. He's giving instructions to Sariah, and he says, this is the end of the prophecy to Babylon you're going to go deliver. It's all you have to read, Sariah. <laughs> <laughs> Scholars that lack an appreciation for the inspiration of the scripture often find problems where they don't exist. Our time this evening is better used by looking at the two brothers that we mentioned earlier, Baruch and Sariah. We have a slide for you about the similarity of their two tasks. I'm sure you all caught it, but just in case you didn't, we thought that it might be good to point out. 
In Jeremiah 36, 8, Baruch, son of Neriah, did everything Jeremiah the prophet told him to do at the Lord's temple. He, meaning Baruch, read the words of the Lord from the scroll. Well, compare that with Jeremiah 51, 59, or if you're a Greek scholar reading the LXX, chapter 28, 59. The word that the Lord commanded Jeremiah the prophet to speak to Sariah, son of Neriah, son of Messiah, when he was going from Zedekiah, king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his kingdom. And Sariah was the ruler of the gifts. Now you see a New Testament quote at the bottom of both of these passages. In Galatians 2.8, for God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, then, you see, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. This comparison gets to be even more intriguing when you consider that Baruch was sent to the temple without any special credentialing. He was not a priest. He was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. And yet, in God's providence, Baruch was the perfect messenger for the prophecy of Jeremiah to the Jewish leadership. This reminded us of Peter being specifically selected to share the gospel with the Jewish leadership of his day. Now, I don't know about you, but I personally love the fact that God could use ignorant men from yeah. fishing towns to reach the Jews. <laughs> Man, God could do anything. But you know, on the other hand, Sariah, who had a special standing among the Jews, had no special standing among the Babylonians, and yet God chose Sariah to be the messenger who brought the word to Babylon. This reminds us of Paul and his role in bringing the Gentiles the word of God. Look, if any of you can find that in a commentary, then I'll buy you dinner. But if you can't, then you all owe me dinner. As another point of emphasis, we also could not help but notice that Zedekiah thought he selected Sariah to be an ambassador carrying gifts or bribes to Babylon. But God in his wisdom chose Sariah to be an emissary not sent by men, but by God to declare... Babylon's destruction. Here's your gift, King Babylon. <laughs> so Zedekiah was uh, caught like a tiger being caught by his tail. See, our God has a great sense of humor. Picking well, up in 52. So now we're going to officially jump into chapter 52. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Okay. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. His mother's name was Hamathar. Daughter of Jeremiah. Different Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. Okay, so we're going to pop, probably for the last time, we're going to pop this political background of the time period. I don't know, we'll see. On the screen. <laughs> Maybe we'll do it a couple more times, but this might be one of the last times you're going to see this. This is the time period that we're talking about here. We're going we're gonna to cover Jehoiachin at a little bit later. That's going to be special. But Zedekiah and his reign was 11 years. Somebody say 11 years. 11 years. That's going to become very important as we progress through this chapter. So 
granted, we've been looking at this slide for 10 months now, right? Uh, so yeah. you guys are getting very familiar with its, its context. But right now, we're in the time of the final siege, the final chapter, the final exile. Mm. Things are looking kind of dark here in yeah. chapter 52. But they always do. They always look dark like this right before there's a resurrection of calling, a resurrection of purpose, and a resurrection of election. Amen. 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 Verse 3. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. <laughs> it's kind of funny. You can be asked to leave somewhere. Or you can be thrust from that location. <laughs> yeah, I'll let that sit with you for a minute. Get off my job, sir. So he thrust them from his presence. This is reminiscent of Eden. Yeah. You hear some of that verbiage being uh-huh. similar? Yeah. Now the central issue with mankind is not that God has failed to give us instructions or that he has failed to have a compassionate destiny for us. He hasn't failed. The central issue with every living soul is our flagrant disregard for his word, both in Jeremiah's day and for us. We cannot disregard his word. This will cause any man, regardless of what that man thinks he believes, to be thrust from God's presence, which is bad. bad. (laughs) Zedekiah, like Adam, I'm just being shot today. Being thrust from his presence is bad. We don't want that. I'm not sure how many bouncers it will take, but I know how many he'll use. (laughs) (laughs) Zedekiah, like Adam, and the rest of humanity rebelled against God before he rebelled against any other thing by disregarding his word. He had a problem with the Lord, and that caused problems everywhere else in his life. Let's review Genesis 3.24. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, we will not repeat Genesis tonight, but our God guards or shamars to protect or preserve the way back to his presence. Amen. Amen. This is true for Adam, and it is true for Israel. Amen. Amen. So let's go ahead and move on to verse 4. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They camped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of of King Zedekiah. All right, so we're going to take a minute. We're going to show you a few well-designed slides. I'm talking about like... (laughs) Oh, it was masterful. (laughs) As you just read, 11-year reign. So we start with an 11-year time zone. Okay, everybody tracking with me? Yep. Yep. This is as long as Zedekiah is in charge. That's designated by this red line. Now we're going to take a look at the point in Zedekiah's reign that the message of Babylon's doom went forth. Okay? This is your next slide that Pastor Elder Eric Stevens is going to get. I had a Biden moment. I'm sorry. Does anybody see green? <laughs> Jeremiah 51, 59 says... We've been debating the colors with Trista all day. I swear it's green. <laughs> this is the message Jeremiah gave to the staff officer, Sariah, son of Neriah, the son of Masiah, when he went to Babylon with Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year of his reign. Wow. 
So if you take 11 and you subtract 4 from it, that leaves a period of 7 years illustrated on your screen. During the time that Israel was determined to go into Babylonian captivity, another message was being sent to Babylon as the captors. Namely, that they would also meet their ultimate destruction. Aside from the obvious parallels to Revelation 13.10, if you're destined to go into captivity, into captivity you'll go, destined to perish by the sword, then by the sword you'll perish. There's something very interesting here. The timeline on the screen is designed to help you see it. Four years into Zedekiah's reign, the message to Babylon went out and was received for a period of seven years. Any Bible student should immediately be thinking about Joshua's seven-year military campaign. If that doesn't do it for you, you should be thinking of Jacob working seven years for the bride that he wanted. If that doesn't do it for you, you ought to be thinking of the seven years of Jacob's trouble before the kingdom of the world gives way to the kingdom of God. Now there's a basic message in this for any astute Bible student. From the beginning of the time of Israel's travailing, the countdown to the judgment on their Gentile oppressors has also already begun. Mm. Israel may look like they are the ones in trouble, but they are only being disciplined. The one that is really in trouble is the Gentile oppressor that is caught holding the paddle because he is destined for ultimate destruction. Do you think it's a mistake that it's exactly seven years? No. All right, you guys remember last week where God spoke to, to Israel and he said, you are my war club. Uh, With you, I shatter nations. Well, you may remember this slide from last week. See, God uses the same standards in dealing with Israel as he does with the Gentile nations. We learned that in Jeremiah 6.22, God speaks to Israel and he says, Look, an army is coming from the land of the north. A great nation is being stirred up from the ends of the earth. They are armed with bow and spear, not beer. They are cruel and show no mercy. They sound like the roaring sea as they ride on their horses. They come like men in battle formation to attack you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard reports about them and our hands hang limp. Anguish has gripped us, pain like that of a woman in labor. You see the exact parallel in Jeremiah 50 except for two things. In verse 42, it says they come like men in battle formation to attack you, O daughter of Babylon. And in 43, it says the king of Babylon has heard reports about them and his hands hang limp. See, what we are reading about presently is the fall of Jerusalem. However, that fall for Jerusalem is a stumble because Israel will recover By repenting and receiving Messiah. It is a sure thing according to God's covenant promise. They will repent. But while they are receiving that temporary stumbling. Judgment is being stored up. And in this case a seven year period for Babylon. That will fall permanently because there is no repentance. 
This might remind you of Revelation where it says this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. (laughs) What's wrong with y'all? Y'all doing okay? Y'all are drunk on your child tax credits. What's what's happening? Uh, You've just identified the seven-year period. You've just identified both the redeeming nature of God to Israel during their discipline of the seven years and his avenging nature during the same seven years. You can't buy that just anywhere. Yeah, just to take one more crack at it. So we're, we're discussing repeating patterns. This time, in our current context in Jeremiah, Jerusalem is destroyed. There is no Messiah that comes and regathers them all immediately. We have a 70-year captivity. You know what will happen in the exact same pattern? Babylon will oppress Israel once again, but at the end of the seven years, there will be a Messiah that is returning to crush. Guys, it's a pattern that is laying out that is exactly how Revelation presents this time period that Daniel forecasts that he's giving us insight to and that perhaps our generations from this room will even get to see. You do the math and you will find out that Zedekiah's rebellion against Babylon leaves three years left before the fall of Jerusalem. Now the months don't work out perfectly like they do in Revelation to be 42 or like Daniel, three and a half. Of course, those were later revelations. But they are certainly hinted at here. A seven-year period that three years or three and a half years into it, a rebellion occurs that brings about the total fall of, in this case, Jerusalem, and in the next case, Babylon. Yeah. Yeah. Church, have any of you ever been in a trial and you're like, how long is this going to last? See, God has forecasted already how long it is going to last in the book of Revelation, and he's done that for you so that you can prepare and be ready to endure it. Come on. If he hadn't cut the time short, then maybe nobody would have survived. But he's already determined that time period for his people. Come on. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Come on. Verse 6. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. So we're nearing the end of that seven-year period now, right there at the end of it. And we're, we're getting to see and feel some of the conditions in the city, what the people are having to go through. It would be really easy just to read over this verse and keep going, but put yourself in those shoes for a moment. The famine in the city was so severe that there wasn't any food there. They're under siege. There's no way to go out and to gather food. They've run out of provisions. They're starving. They actually have nothing to eat. The conditions on the ground are very severe in this time. And this is where you read some of the passages in Scripture about uh, the Lord looking at their cannibalistic nature and saying, man, I didn't even think that this was happening. There was no food in the city and people were dying from hunger. This calls for the patient endurance of the saints, though. This is the attitude that we must have as we're looking at this this time period to come. That no matter what it looks like, we are going to be in the number of saints that are patiently yeah. enduring because we know who we belong to and we know that our Messiah is coming. Amen. If you haven't noticed it yet, this is the backdrop for the book of Revelation. Yeah. 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 
Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward the Arabs, but the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Ripple in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Ripple, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, who bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon, where he put him in prison till the day of his death. Bad day. Now, we covered this back in chapter 39, so we will not reteach this information. But it is an astounding thing how accurately and precisely these things were predicted by the prophets. Now, this should serve as a reminder to any serious student of the Bible that all errors come from your understanding. Yes. Mm -hmm. The text itself is perfect. Amen. And it is us who need to grow, who need to be changed, and need to repent. Amen. We don't yeah. read the word to change the word so it makes sense. We read the word and let it change us Amen. so that everything in its proper context makes sense. Amen. 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 Let's move on to verse 12. On the tenth day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building was he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the command commander of the Imperial Guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But Nebuzaradan left behind the rest of the poorest people land to do work, to, to work the vineyards and the fields. <laughs> Alright, so Babylon's intentions are clear in these verses. Yeah. They're like you mamas that have had enough rebellion and you're just ready to kill everybody in the room. <laughs> I'm gonna rise up! <laughs> this is the third time they've had to lay siege to the same city. By ancient standards, which we're about to recount is actually pretty mild when you've had Three rebellions from one city under the same king who remembers. Yeah. Now, with this in mind, that's why they're working to destroy everything. They're trying to break down walls, anything that might be used as a seat of power. They want to bring a total end to this conflict and make it final. We should, you know, even consider a few lessons in our warfare from this. We like to make sure that we leave residual enemies everywhere that we go. But what we want to focus on is in the midst of this nation judging God's people, there's something very precious and special. It's tucked away, and you might just read right over it and never notice that it existed. It's a passage that is referenced in Matthew 5.5. 5. The meek will inherit the earth. Yeah. Ponder that for a moment. It turns out that Jesus was referencing the kind of humble acceptance to the judgments of God that have always preserved those who will be made righteous. While the wicked are swept away, the poor of the land are still left and inherit every bit of it. That's 
Uh, when you're thinking through that, meek is not a word that we use a lot. But meek, in its essence, means that you're no longer resistant to what God is doing. Yeah. Those that are poor, they've always received the gospel first, are no longer resistant to the idea that their nation deserves the judgment of God. And if they're supposed to go into Babylon, and that's God's will spoken through Jeremiah, then they're more than willing to go into Babylon. They're good figs. And those are the kind that God will rebuild from. Okay? Let's pick up in verse 17. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze seats that were at the temple of the Lord. And they carried all the bronze to Babylon. We could teach all night on this. But we have a lot to do, and there's 35 minutes left. These pillars, well, they include Yachin and Boaz. They're named in Scripture. Yachin means he establishes. Boaz means in him is strength. Think about the picture that this is painting. Perhaps it looked in this generation like God had not established Israel in his strength. Perhaps in this generation, it looks like the promises of God have failed. But you should also take note, God's purposes will stand. Amen. Amen. They'll stand through all time. In fact, the book of Ezra in the very first chapter lists everything that is about to be mentioned in these coming verses that was taken into Babylon as all being returned. Come on. It's not just an inventory list in Ezra. He's communicating something to you. The God of Israel will never abandon his purpose for his people. Amen. It's similar to the book of Exodus being Shemot in Hebrew. These are the names. Why does it start with the names? I want you to know that I know the name of every man that is going into Egypt because I plan on bringing them out. Why write down what the Babylonians took? Because it would later be recorded Amen. that they had to return it. Not understanding this about God's nature, God's word, and his plan for Israel causes you to have very circumstantial interpretations. It causes you to look at a singular week and judge the nation by that week. You must look at them through the eternal lens of the gospel. This will cause you to avoid error. I want to tell you that he established it, Israel in his strength. And Israel's continued existence and their future restoration is a statement about God, yeah. not about Israel. Yeah. You need to get your focal point correct because you insult God when you misunderstand this. Yeah. So I believe we're in verse 18. They also took away the pots, mm. shovels, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the basins, censers, sprinkling bowls, pots, lampstands, dishes, and bowls used for drink offerings, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from Hey, the did you catch what those were for? Drink offerings. Drink offerings. Yeah. Yep. You see why it upset the Lord so badly that Belteshazzar used them to get drunk with and party with his friends? Yep. Mm. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea, and the 
twelve bronze bulls under it, and the movable stand which King Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord was more than could be weighed. Each of the pillars was eighteen cubits high and twelve cubits in circumference. Each was four fingers thick, four fingers thick and hollow. The bronze capital on the top of the one pillar was five cubits high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar, which is pomegranates, was similar. There were 96 pomegranates on the side, and the total number of pomegranates above the surrounding network was 100. The commander of the guard took as prisoner Sarahiah, the chief priest. Different Sarahiah. Zephaniah, the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and seven royal advisors. He also took the secretary who was chief officer in charge of constricting the people of the land and 60 of his men who were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Ribla. There at Ribla, in the, ha in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. This was the number of the people Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year, 832 people from Jerusalem. In his 23rd year, 745 Jews taken in exile by Nebuzaradan, the commander of the Imperial Guard. There were 4,600 people in all. So there are various ways to view this number, this 4,600 people that went into exile. Many have thought this number was too low to represent all Jews taken into captivity. And this has led to a great deal of speculation and extrapolation. But tonight we thought it best to avoid that unnecessary controversy. The point is that God was using these events to winnow his people. Yeah. Like putting them through a sieve. So remember that Jeremiah 24 verse 4 says this. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Now perhaps the reason that Ezra detailed the families that returned was to show the fulfillment of the good fig prophecy. Come on now. Again, this is not just a list of people or a random genealogy. Ezra is showing you the fulfillment of what God said and how God is always true to his word. Yes. Now in Ezra's time, those who returned, those numbers were much higher. Yeah. Ten times. But you know what this tells us? This tells us that the overriding point is that a small remnant will be grown into a righteous, radiant bride. Oh. A small remnant that is crushed, pummeled by God, and accepts the judgment that is upon her, going in and being called good figs and thriving in captivity. That is what grows up to be a righteous, radiant bride. Oh. And this is the process. 
This is the process for every person in this room, and it will be the process for Israel again in the future. Perhaps that is why Paul went throughout the churches in Acts, and he encouraged them. He said, it is through many trials, toils, and tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. Consider this profound truth, saints. When Israel was in Egypt, you would think that that would squelch their numbers. You would think that that would cause them to die off as a people. But what it actually did was cause them to multiply exceedingly. When Israel goes into Babylon with 4,600 people that are named here, you would think that that would be the end of the nation. But it wasn't. They were prospered during the tribulation. They grew during the tribulation. So that ten times that number is recorded as coming out by name. What is the message for you? Did the church shrink under persecution? Or does the church actually grow under persecution? God's method of disciplining us only causes us to grow. If it kills you, it's because you didn't actually belong to him. One of the ways that we show that we are of the substance of God is that we are literally a bush consumed with fire that is not consumed by that fire. Something supernatural is at work within Israel and those that have come to love Israel like you Gentiles in this room. Get verse 31, but man, your spirits should begin to rise. I know it's been a little bit of a dark chapter, but we are about to get into some major light and hope here in these next few verses. Good. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in, in the year of Evil Muradah, became the king of Babylon. He released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison on the 25th day. This was uh, this was that character on A Team, right? <laughs> Mr. T and Merida. 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 Okay. I just went crazy. Sure. I like him. Is that who that was, Nick? Something like that, right? No, no. no evil Merida. So in English, it sounds real bad, right? Because yeah. evil in English is not good. Well, it's right? still it's bad actually the exact opposite of good in English. But in his language in Babylon, this is not a bad name at all. Evil is actually like Awel is a better transliteration of it. We have a slide for this actually, and it's going to help us. Evil Merodach, his name means man of Marduk. So, of course, Marduk, uh, well, he's a god. He's evil, bad. But the man, his name itself, he's just saying he's a man of one of his gods. Okay? So that's where his name came from. We wanted to tell you about some background here. Because in verse 31, he does a weird thing with Jehoiachin. He becomes king, and it seems like one of the first things that he does is release Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And we, we want to propose something to you that might be one of the reasons why this king is doing this for a king of Israel in prison. We read something in Fawcett's Bible Dictionary, and it's attested to in the Hebrew Chronicle of Jerachmiel. I think I got that. Mm -hmm. Nebuchadnezzar, he had this 
weird seven-year period in his life where he was kind of on medical leave, right? <laughs> he went a little bit crazy. He got the Rona. For about seven years. Like, Lycanthropy. Crawling you know, around like an animal, like a goat, eating random stuff off the ground. Yeah. Well, like in California. Pfizer said they tested the vaccine. It would be okay for him. Wow, I, I don't want to know how they would administer the vaccine to him. Um, so he's on medical leave for seven years, and somebody's got to run the country, right? So what history tells us in some of, some of the uh, events that we read about is that Evil Merodach is actually the one that took this uh, rulership for these seven years. And he ran the country during this time. But you see, Nebuchadnezzar didn't die after the seven years. He actually came back, he got his sanity back. We have Daniel 4 to attest to this, right? And so he comes back and he sees evil Merodach ruling and he doesn't like it. History tells us that evil Merodach, he didn't do a very good job while he was crazy. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he kicks him out and he puts him in prison. Says basically, you did this, you shouldn't have done it. I'm gonna put you in prison. now. During that time, while Evil Merodach is in prison, there's a potential for something. It seems that Evil Merodach was in prison with King Jehoiachin, and they became friends during that time. And so after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, Evil Merodach comes out and he's restored to the kingship, and what is the thing that he does? Well, he takes his friend out of prison, okay? And he seats him at his table, eating with him on a daily basis. This story may call to mind Joseph in prison, right? The prison portion, Joseph gets put in the prison. He makes some friends in there, and it turns out for his good. Might also come to mind the story of Mephibosheth in the time of David. In either case, God is always at work to preserve the Davidic line. Guys, we want to make sure that you get something here. Because if you remember Jehoiachin, He's the father of Shield Teal. Wow. That's Shield Teal's father. Now, who's the who's Shield Teal's son? Zerubbabel. Wow. We have a Davidic line. We're reaching the end of the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 52, a dark chapter, but what does the Lord do? He's writing to us and he's saying, hey, the Davidic line is still here, guys. I'm still taking care of the line of David because I still have a Messiah that is going to come and that is going to set my people free and bring judgment on the nations. This is the emphasis as we read the end of the book of Jeremiah. Wow. The Davidic line is not terminated, and it will not be terminated until Messiah returns. Hey, before we get to that archaeological record that's coming, I want want you to appreciate something for just a second, okay? Not only did none of you know that, (laughs) it's not because we have a vault with secret books in it. Matthew 1.12 tells us the lineage of Jesus Christ. And Jehoiachin's in it. And Jehoiachin's son is Shealtiel. And Shealtiel's son is Zerubbabel. What a difference three generations can make. Matthew wanted us to know this connection from the book of Jeremiah. That's why he recorded it for the Jewish world to read. And we skip it at the beginning of his gospel repetitiously 
or get caught up in Luke's genealogy versus Matthew and seeing if we can find a difference instead of looking at the picture that is being painted. God wanted us to know, I am severely chastening them, but I will never turn my back on the Davidic line because I made a promise. Amen. <laughs> that Davidic line is going to spring up like a shoot coming from a dry stump. And we are yeah. going to see the line Amen. spring forth before our very eyes. Amen. God's purposes will always prevail. By the way, we do have that slide that has the literal record of Jehoiachin's daily food allowance. This is the cuneiform tablet. They found it. And they found it. I don't know who transcribed it or translated it, but if I remember right, Eric may be able to help me out with this. Something like five liters of oil. Yeah. It, it was a pretty good ration. Even Meridoc was taking care of his friend, apparently. It's quite a ration card to have to carry around in your pocket, huh? <laughs> but it's always nice when you're studying, you lose it. studying the word. You're pulling out all these historical narratives and all these prophecies that are proven true time and time again, Amen. showing God's character. But it's also nice whenever we uncover some kind of artifact that just confirms everything yeah. that the Word already says is true. Yeah. Can, can I ask you all a question about this? We have 19 minutes, so I'll make it quick. Do you find it spectacular that we found the actual record of his daily provisions that Jeremiah said he got? Yes. Do you find it sad? that we need to find that spectacular? Yes. <laughs> How about we just assume if the Bible says it, it's true? Yeah. And the fact that some old German in this case dug that up and showed it to us and now he's famous for it, it was written there all along. Did yeah. we need to see? Uh, can you read the stone anyway? No. You're showing more faith that we are showing you that stone than most people have in the word of God. Yes. What if we just read it and said, because he said it, we know that it yeah. happened? Amen. 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 Let's pick up in 32 and go through the end of 34. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor, higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes, and for the rest of his life, Amen. ate regularly at the king's table. Now, they we don't have time to discuss putting aside grave clothes, I mean prison clothes, and walking in. But you can obviously see the parallels of what God is doing in the Davidic line. Yeah. yeah. Please finish, brother. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. Now, as we attempt to wrap up the book of Jeremiah in its entirety, we told you from the beginning that this book conveyed spiritual artistry. Our greatest hope is that you have gleaned a better image of God's working in the book. <laughs> since clearly, none of us are artists by any stretch of the imagination, we did something we don't normally do. We borrowed some things from the Bible Project to help us summarize the book. You guys ready for this? Yeah. All right. So the first slide is from Jeremiah 36. You guys see the imagery here? We have a man standing. It says 20 years underneath it. My one note is not being kind to me. It's because 20 years into Jeremiah's ministry, we get a revelation. And it happens in chapter 36. Jeremiah is unique because of the way that the book itself was put together. Yeah. 
It was in chapter 36 that you learned that Baruch had to assemble all the works of Jeremiah for us. Every sermon, poem, or essay. Now, you should thank us for these reviews because if God calls on you to reassemble what we have, have done over these last 36 sessions, you might have an appreciation for the difficulty of Baruch's work. Last 19 years. This is, this is the reason that the book reads like an anthology, a collection of poems, essays, and sermons. And it's one of the reasons the chronology is a little difficult in it. It had to be assembled after the fact. And then it was destroyed with a cutting knife and pieces thrown into a fire and had to be reassembled again and many other beautiful things added to it. That gives you some appreciation. It's not a contradiction in the text that the Masoretic looks different than the LXX. It actually is attesting to what the book says happened. Yeah. Okay? Now, if we pick up in our next slide, if we can kind of uh, put Jeremiah into three sections. The first one would be chapters 1 through 24. Chapters 1 through 24 and the first section of Jeremiah have to do with the accusation from God to Israel and warning from Israel. Now in chapter 1, we see Jeremiah's calling. We see that God appointed Jeremiah as a prophet to Israel and to the nations. And he appointed Jeremiah specifically to uproot and to tear down. Has to do with judgment. To plant and build up, having to do with hope. Then as we move along, we get to chapter 7 as kind of like a climactic example of Israel's hypocrisy illustrated through Jeremiah's temple sermon. You remember chapter 7? Jeremiah, God tells him to go to the temple. That is because inside the temple, as you can see in the bottom left, inside the temple they made the attempt to worship God. But as soon as they went outside of the temple, they began to worship the foreign gods of all the nations around them, which brings us to chapter 25. In chapter 25, God began to say that he is going to use Babylon to destroy the temple by sending this enemy from the north. God is going to use Babylon to destroy Jerusalem, and he's going to exile them for 70 years. This is because Jerusalem was the center of their idolatry and hypocrisy, and God says, I won't allow my nation to do that. He then began to relate as Babylon as the cup of God's anger and the idea that that cup was going to spill out in wrath on Jerusalem. Now, that's the verdict. Babylon is a cup of God's wrath for a cup of wrath for Israel. So God has mixed it, and Israel's going to have to drink it. But the book then transitions. Nick, talk to us about chapter 26 through 45. So chapters 26 through 45 is really a middle section. It's the second out of three of Jeremiah. It's right there in between the book. And that middle section, it really has three parts. There are two bookends. The first bookend really is chapters 26 through 29, speaking specifically about how Jeremiah is rejecting and is rejected by Israel's leaders. Then the bookend on the other side is chapters 34 through 35. This is talking about the siege of Jerusalem and Jeremiah's kidnapping as well. 
But there's a white section in the middle of your screen, and you can't really see it from where you are. But it's a beautiful section in the book. Right in the middle of all those dark circumstances, Jeremiah 30 through 33 is the part of Jeremiah that outlines Israel's newer covenant and the surety of their election. Peyton's going to talk to us about the last third of Jeremiah. So in the last third of the book, you have that slide. Chapters 46 through 51 display every nation drinking the cup of God's wrath by the way of Babylon. And then as we move on to chapters 50 through 51, Babylon herself will have to drink the same cup that she gave everyone else. And her destination is final. There's no hope. Do you remember the passages? No one was well. No one will pass through. Not man nor animal. That's because God is very mad at Babylon for taking what was his. (laughs) But he's going to get it back. And then finally in chapter 52, we see the fulfillment of the prophecy against Israel. But, say but. But. We also see the promise of hope for the Davidic line. Look, we want to show you this as a uh, whole picture. And I see you getting out your phones and, you know, some of you are very fascinated with your Zoom feature right now. (laughs) We're going to provide you with these notes, full digital rendering. So you'll be able to blow them up on your TV screen at home if you you want to. (coughs) Show us that next slide. All right. So this is the whole mosaic. We've been showing you pieces of it. But again, this will be inner notes. Now that we've accomplished our task, We've gone through every verse of Jeremiah together. We want to remind you that God is the actual artist. He's the one painting the picture. He's doing it through Jeremiah, but it is God who is the artist. And the subject of his painting is his sons. Amen. It is Israel. With that in mind, consider Paul's words in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, Israel, he is also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Come on. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Israel is foreknown, predestined. And they will be conformed to the image of his son. That is the message of Jeremiah, and it is what Paul is keying on. Jeremiah's contemporary Habakkuk teaches us the attitude. Somebody say attitude. Attitude. There is a right place for attitude, and it's prescribed by the scripture. Habakkuk teaches us the attitude that Israel must display, and that we, as Graftons, must display as we await the final destruction of mystery Babylon that will surely come. We've tried to paint a picture from the beginning of Jeremiah to the end. We've tried to show you, starting with a father and son, and then finishing with the tools that God has used to conform a nation into the image of the Son of God that is Jesus Christ, the King of the Nations. We hope you appreciate that symmetry. We got it from Jeremiah. But the question remains for all of us, as Judah has alluded to, what do you do when you know that there is a coming, terrible forming 
process. And that it will be followed by restoration. But it will be a time of trouble like has never been before. What do you do? Well, Israel showed us that example with the Exodus. They showed us that example with Babylon. They showed us again under Rome. And theologians all take up their various positions about why this is a fulfillment, and they're missing the point. The point is, is that they're illustrating for us what the whole process looks like. Amen. You'll know that it's done when our salvation is complete because Babylon is destroyed and Israel is glorified. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's when this will be done. So, so much for the partial. There can be nobody that is anything other than partial unless you're just that deceived. Habakkuk actually shows us what to do. Yeah. Can we cover that together in our last seven minutes? Yeah. I want you to first read this for the Jew and then read it for the Gentile believer. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet, somebody say yet. Yes. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. This is the heart of a man that knows that they must endure the judgments of God, and yet he will wait patiently for the judgment of God to come on the ones judging them. Come on. Can you not hear the book of Revelation in that? Yeah. If you're destined to go into captivity, you'll go. If you're destined to die by the sword, you will. But this calls for patient endurance. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails. By the way, we've just seen three references to Israel through agriculture. Though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stall. Yet, somebody say, yet, yes. I will rejoice in the Lord. Yes. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Can you learn from Israel? Yes. This is the attitude that is required of Israel. This is also the attitude that is required of every Gentile graft in. Tell me that you have known one in 10,000 Gentile graft ins that have begun to comprehend this. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. When you're trying to digest this, understand that Israel has been in a cycle of covenant chastisement since the covenant was given. And so has every other real believer on the earth. Yes. That is not God destroying you. Yeah. That is God forming you into the image of the son that he loves. Amen. That is not God reducing you. That is God multiplying the only part of you that is worth multiplying. Amen. Habakkuk teaches us the attitude that we are to walk in the Christian faith. And it is echoed all the way through Jeremiah all the way unto the book of Revelation that repeats the refrain. 
This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. We're going to turn this meeting over to the pastors with four minutes left, but I want to tell you that we have every confidence that this investment in you, because it takes a little while to write over 860 pages of notes, this investment in you will produce the patient endurance of the saints. like me and moved to tears when you realized that the last few verses in Jeremiah were reminding you of the line of David? Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. In keeping with that thought, um, Sydney, if you'll put up Psalm 118, I think I'm going to do 13 through 18. So. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. If you can think about these verses in a couple of layers, because in closing, I'm going to do this quickly, but you need to think about it this way, because this is what our brothers have shown us how to think about it. First of all, for the Jew. This could almost be a short one-verse summary of, what was going on in the book of Jeremiah. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. Look at the next verse. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Amen. Next verse. Shouts of joy and victory. The The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. First for the Jew. Then you can think about it for us. But it's supposed to produce something that rises up within you and says that they won't escape from it, but neither can you. So it, it takes away, it eliminates the thoughts of, why am I in this? Because you're being treated like a son. Amen. Because you need to know from the depths of your being the truth that God, His right hand, has done mighty things and He can do it inside of you. Amen. Watch this. Next verse. I will, live, I will not die, but live. Hallelujah. First for the Jew. If it's 4,600 people, you can look at it and say, yep, that's the end of them. No, it's not. I will not die, but live. What about you? I used to think it a joke almost in Proverbs. It says when you discipline your child, they will not die. And I always think about your kid that feels like they're going to die every time you spank them. Until I realize that I'm the child in the, in the story. <laughs> and he needs to tell me constantly, I will not die but live. But I can look to my bigger, righteous, older brother Israel and say, I can see it in them and I know what to expect in my life. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Last verse for me. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. First for the Jew, and then for us to understand what we can learn from our older 
natural bloodline brother Israel. Amen. Haven't you guys received a wealth of understanding? As Gentiles receiving this wealth of understanding, there also is a great responsibility. Responsibility to have, number one, a right perspective of God's firstborn son, Israel. That we are to have the attitude of gratefulness. Gratefulness that we've had an older brother go before us. And that we can watch and learn from. All of you that are born after the firstborn can be greatly appreciative of that aspect. Yes. I want to read to you Romans 15 and just verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Let me read this a different way. For everything that was written in the past about Israel was written to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. This great wealth of understanding and responsibility, it should produce and is producing hope inside of us. Hope for our older brother Israel and hope for what God is doing in us as we're walking through these dark days. Gentlemen, I feel no need to add a sermonette to what these pastors just quoted with. It's perfectly apt. I may just speak to you for a moment as your pastor, not as teaching mode. Chris Rizor, you're going to live and not die. Amen. Cody Stevens, you're going to live and not die. Amen. Looking around the room, Juan, you're going to live and not die. Amen. Stephanie Fowler, you're going to live and not die. I can see eyes all around this room that you're identifying with what they're speaking about right now in a way that you just haven't recognized in the past. It's not just for sin's sake, it's also for righteousness sake. That God brings us and breaks down every aspect of who we are where we are straining under the pressure so that his resurrection power can be made alive in us. If you don't identify with what we're speaking about at this moment, I promise the Lord to bring you into it. There's more. Don't wait. It will come to pass. Ibrahim, the vision that the Lord has given you about the future will live and will not die. Amen. As these brothers close us out, take the lesson of those that have gone before us, as Pastor Matthew just said. Please, acknowledge, rightly aim your heart at the fact that it is Israel. It is their future. And that you... You've been grafted into it, and you're a part of the same olive tree that will not be scorched and will not be burned out. We will thrive in the house of God together. showing 
Jeremiah tonight. You know, what the Lord is doing in you and what he is doing in me, what he is doing in us, is always to produce life. It's always to produce future. It is always to produce generation. It is always life involved in it. I want to have one more passage as we close out tonight from Revelation 1, verse 9, to show you what belongs to you. To show you what nobody can steal from you. What is part of your inheritance. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. We are brothers. We are companions in these things that belong to us. The suffering in the kingdom and the patient endurance of the kingdom. They are ours and nobody can take them away from us. Our good Father knows exactly what we need as we stand together in order to grow his body, in order to accomplish his work. Hey, let's lift our hands with confidence, knowing that these things are going to happen. Father, thank you for your kingdom, Lord God. Thank you for a chance to patiently endure. Thank you for a chance, mighty God, to look at our older brother and to learn from their example, mighty King. Father, we thank you for Israel, Lord. We thank you for what they have gone through and what they will go through. And we thank you for a chance to stand with them in those trials, Lord. We look forward to our future together, Lord God, and we look forward